This is Fresh Ed, a weekly podcast that makes complex ideas in educational research easily understood. I'm your host, Will Brem. The Global Partnership for Education is a powerful, multi-stakeholder organization in educational development. It funds millions of dollars to develop education systems in dozens of low-income countries. Yet the board of directors of the organization strategically avoids some of the most important and controversial topics in education today. My guest today, Francine Menashe, has researched the Global Partnership for Education and the ways in which its board of directors avoids the topic of low-fee private schools, which is a heavily debated idea in both education policy and research. Francine Menashe is an assistant professor in the Department of Leadership in Education at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. She researches aid, education, and non-state sector engagement, including the policies of international organizations, companies, and philanthropies. Her research discussed in today's show was funded through a fellowship with the National Academy of Education and the Spencer Foundation. Francine Menashe, welcome to Fresh Ed. Hi, thanks for having me on. You have a uh, working paper on tiptoeing around private schools and the global partnership for education, and it's for the National Center for the Study of Privatization in Education at Teachers College, Columbia University. You write that educational development has experienced two major trends of late, the rise of international partnerships and the rise of private schooling. Can you explain these trends in a little bit more detail? Sure. So one trend, the one I'll talk about first, is is the one that most people who who work in education and development know about very well, and that's a very rapid growth in private schooling throughout the global south. And this can be seen in a few different forms uh, through an increase in public-private partnerships or PBPs, and that's like vouchers and charters or subsidies. But I think what's been more controversial has been a really remarkable rise in low-cost private schools. And this trend, this, this rise in private schooling, as I'm sure you know, is a very, very contentious issue. Um, the second trend is this increase in transnational coordination, where very diverse groups of organizations from the state and the non-state sectors are collaborating in educational financing and in policy design. And uh, this can be seen in the establishment of what's been called multi-stakeholder partnerships. And these are collaborative organizations. They bring together a range of stakeholders and they try to tackle single issue areas like disease, the environment, water, that sort of thing. Uh, and for instance, you've probably heard of the Global Fund to fight AIDS, TB, and malaria. It's probably the best known multi-stakeholder partnership. So we're seeing a lot more collective and collaborative action on, on global issues, including education. So my research is really looking at these two big trends, privatization on the one hand and, and transnational coordination on the other, and, and how they, they interconnect. Why is low-cost private schooling so contentious? Well, because I think primarily because it's fee-based. These are schools that have cropped up, uh, they're really mushrooming throughout the the global south, 
Um, and they're rising in response to what some would argue are failed public systems of education. Some would argue that. Um, and they charge very nominal fees and they're said to target low income families, poor families who are dissatisfied with the public systems. So uh, they're very contentious because uh, critics argue that they create an additional tier of schooling that exacerbate inequities. And your your work p- putting the two together, the private schooling and the multi-stakeholder partnerships or the international partnerships, comes together in, in education in, in um, the case of the Global Partnership for Education. What is the Global Partnership for Education? So the Global Partnership for Education, or the the GPE, it's the largest multi-stakeholder partnership working in education. Um, Just to give you a bit of history, it was initially launched uh, back in the early 2000s by the World Bank, and it was then called the Education for All Fast Track Initiative, or the FTI. Then in uh, the late 2000s, 2010, 2011, uh, after it came under quite a bit of criticism, the FTI was restructured and it was rebranded into what we know now as the Global Partnership for Education. So it's a partnership of a range of actors from the state and the non-state sector. And um, what it does mainly is it pools funds and then provides it to low-income countries, uh, recipient countries, to support their K-12 education systems. So can you, can you tell us some of the actors, like who are the funders and then who are the recipients? Sure. So the I'll start with the recipient countries must be low-income countries, and uh, there's over 60 of them now. And uh, they, they're essentially countries that show that they don't have adequate funding to support their education systems, but they have the ability to design a, a satisfactory education sector plan. Um, and the donors are, are rich country bilateral donors. There's a, a range of them, the UK, Canada, Japan, the US, uh, uh, OECD countries. Are, are there any philanthropic organizations? There are. There's um, a, a separate seat on the constituency for the private sector and private foundations. Uh, however, the foundations in the private sector haven't really become big funders to the GPE. I think at their last replenishment, two uh, private foundations gave some funding to the GPE, but it was it was relatively small. It's why, primarily the donors. So why do they have, why do the private sector and the philanthropic organizations have seats within the GPE if they're not funding like the donor countries? So that's a that's an interesting question. I've done some research in that area, and uh, it's it, it depends on who you ask. So from the GPE standpoint, from the Secretariat standpoint, it seems as though they were really invited into the GPE with this intention and a hope that they would become funders. Um, I, it, in some ways, the GPE was trying to emulate health sector multi-stakeholder partnerships like the Global Fund, um, which received fairly large contributions from the private sector. Um, but on, if you ask the private sector or the private foundations, they, they're there because they want a seat at the table. They want to influence policy. They want to um, help in the design of solutions to educational problems. Uh, so it really depends on on who you ask what the private sector is doing there. 
And, and what about the World Bank and the UN agencies? Are they involved in the, the Global Partnership for Education? Um, they are. There's a, there is a constituency for multilaterals. So uh, UN agencies are on there, UNICEF, UNESCO, and the World Bank. Um, the World Bank has a very interesting history with the, fa- with the, uh, the Global Partnership for Education and the Fast Track Initiative as well. Um, as I mentioned, the Fast Track Initiative actually started as a, a fund within the World Bank, and it's kind of continued to have a very close relationship with the bank. Uh, it's the Secretariat is housed within the World Bank headquarters. It, it the employees of the Secretariat are uh, employees of the World Bank. The World Bank manages the the funds of the majority of the GPE recipient countries in country. It's a role that's called the supervising entity. So although the World Bank is not a funder to the GPE, they have a, a very, very close relationship to it. So the the actual location where the Global Partnership for Education is located is inside the Washington, D.C. office of the World Bank? Yes, I think it's just up the street. Just up the street. So in DC, and it's host. So the term is it's hosted by the World Bank. Right, and the the World Bank doesn't provide any funding to the GPE. It doesn't provide funding to that pooled fund, the GPE fund, which then gets dispersed to the recipient countries. And but then inside the recipient country, the World Bank is typically the supervising entity of how that money is dispersed. Yes, typically. I think in 70% of the cases, it's the World Bank. So they manage and they disperse the funds. Um, in the other 30% of the cases, um, we've seen the that UNICEF is in most of those cases. I think uh, DFID in a couple of other cases as well. It seems like this would give the World Bank a... Um outside influence or, you know, it's much more influence in the way educational development takes place than other countries and other agencies. Yeah, you could certainly argue that. And in fact, when I I spoke with some of the in-country actors and asked them about the world, the role of the World Bank within the GPE recipient countries, um, I was I was told that uh, the bank has that outsized influence, and it's uh, trying to drive its own agenda in certain country contexts. I obviously didn't talk to everyone, but right. in, in in some areas. And what sort of what would be on that agenda? What would the bank be pushing? Well, it's it's really difficult to say. Um, one issue, and the issue that I asked the most questions about, because it was the nature of my research, was around this issue of private schooling. Um, and I'm not going to say that the World Bank is tr- is driving an agenda around private schooling, and um, but uh, I did hear that even some of the bilateral donors that have a presence at the country level have more influence over the recipient countries' education policies than they would have us know. So let's talk a little bit about how private education and low-fee private schooling, which you said earlier was contentious, how does this fit into the GPE? Well, um, so I could talk a little bit historically of, of how the Fast Track Initiative dealt with private schooling. So 
back when it was it was the fast track initiative, there was a recommendation that 10% of school enrollments should be to private schools. This was in some framework paper that they developed back in, I think it was like 2003, 2004. Uh, and, and from my interviews with staff members who were there at the time, this apparently generated a lot of controversy within the fast track initiative. So I was told that this 10% figure was driven by just a few world bank economists. Um, and then the fast track initiative came under all this criticism and then it was restructured and it came to include this large constituency based board and this 10% benchmark around private education was dropped and now there's no firm policy within the GPE on this particular issue of private education. Was there ever a reason given why 10% was the number of private schools or you know private enrollment? I asked and those I spoke with said that it was almost arbitrary. It was almost as though they looked at countries where they had optimal, you know, high quality public systems of education and, and saw that they might have around 10 percent. I actually I I didn't get a clear answer on that. And I don't think that there is a clear answer. And you said that when it was restructured, the there was um, the board of directors changed. Can you give us a little um, sense of how the GPE is structured um, internally, like who is on the board of directors? Sure. So the board of the GPE is really diverse. So it's what's called a constituency-based board. So it includes 19 voting members and each of them represent a, a different constituency. So these include the donor countries. I talked about that, um, recipient countries. So they have representatives of those 60 countries multilateral agencies like UNESCO and the World Bank, um, civil society organizations, and they have three seats for civil society. They have uh, uh, for the global north and the global south. And then there's a seat for the private sector and the private foundations. And that includes you know, Pearson Education, Microsoft, the Hewlett Foundation. Um, and so there's, uh, there's a couple of board meetings per year. And there's actually a board meeting happening right now, just coincidentally. And they decide on, on various things, GPE processes and policies. They discuss future directions. They approve grant applications, that sort of thing. So are they, are they actively involved in, in the everyday practice of what the GPE does? The, the board members? Yeah, the I, board members. So the secretariat is what deals with the day-to-day -day and right. um, the implementation and, and uh, they have – the secretariat's actually become quite large and, and active. The board of directors, they only meet a few times of the year. I've been told by people in the secretariat that it's a very active board for a board – it, uh, it likes to know what's happening and um, wants to be involved in certain processes or at least have a say. But on the day-to-day, -day, no, I don't think the board of directors is involved. And, and how many people did you say were on the board? It has 19 voting members. 19. And when you say, like, Pearson is involved, do you mean the CEO of Pearson Incorporated? No, it's a representative for Pearson Education. Okay. But I believe Pearson is the representative for the private sector and foundations constituency. 
and or has been for the last few years. Right. And do you do you know anything about the opinions these these different board members have on private education? Well, yeah, I I done quite a bit of research on that. Um, I've I've looked at the internal documents and the policy documents of um, the majority of the board members, and I've talked to many of them in interviews just to get a handle on their views on on private education. And what are some of their views? <laughs> well. <laughs> they range, um, and they're—I would say—they're quite polarized. In fact, I've—I found they—they they come from very, very different ideological standpoints on this whole issue, um, and I mean that has to do in part with the fact that they come from very different organizations and different organizational cultures. So, like the the Pearsons Incorporated board member would be very much on the for private schooling. Is that? Would that be accurate? I mean, it's it's kind of it's very interesting when you think about this board. You have, for for example, you have a board member from Education International, which is the civil society organization that has as part of its mandate to support public education. I mean, it's really explicitly anti-privatization. And then sitting at the same board table is also a representative from Pearson, which is this huge for-profit company that's. I mean, quite unabashedly supported low-cost private schools. I was actually told, one person I interviewed uh, told me that Pearson is like the elephant in the room. Like others are very suspicious of what Pearson is doing in the, in the GPE. So, so, I mean, the board members really come from very different organizations, um, and they come to the GPE with ideas around educational issues that, that have been constructed in their own organizational environments. And these ideas often really clash with one another. Do, so th- all of these, these different ideas that um, are within the board, these, this polarized uh, opinions on private education, is the secretariat, for instance, you know, enacting certain policies that reflect these ideas? So... In fact, these different opinions and these different viewpoints, I got at through the interviews and the policy documents, but not through the meeting documents. And that's because the GPE board hasn't really dealt with this issue of private education. Um, There has been no formal board level dialogue um, conducted on this issue of private education. Why do you think that is? Well, one of my respondents put it really, really well when he he called it strategic avoidance. So this issue, this issue of private schooling is so polarizing and so divisive that to bring it up at a board meeting and and try to come to some kind of consensus on it could really destabilize the partnership. So I was told that as is, the GPs actually a rather fragile consensus. So to bring up an issue like private education is just a bad idea. So I was told that some of the board members would be so angry that the GPE is even considering the possibility of supporting private schools that they'd get up and walk out and leave the partnership. So I think the debate is just simply avoided. Wow. So, I mean, this is like one of the most widely discussed 
phenomena in education today, private education and its influence in public schooling, and yet the partnership, this global partnership that controls millions of dollars, it's not even being discussed at the, at the board level. Mm-hmm. Not in, not in formal spaces, unless they're talking about it right now which would be really fascinating. <laughs> well, it just, it strikes me as, you know, I mean, the strategic avoidance, it's, it, I, I guess I understand that, but I also, I worry that the, the critical issues of our time aren't being addressed by organizations that have huge amount of power and influence around the world. Yeah, and I, I and to be fair, I don't think that this phenomenon is, something that you only find in the Global Partnership for Education. I think that from my reading, many multi-stakeholder partnerships face the same sorts of issues where policy, like real conversations don't happen within their partnerships, like this idea of having dialogue and debate. I think it's really challenging to have it in an environment where Everyone at the table comes from very different organizational cultures and very, very different mandates. And they're not necessarily elected either. Not necessarily. Um, Some of the constituencies have uh, elected members to sit on the board. Elected by whom? Uh, By members of their constituency. I think the civil society uh, constituency, their board members are elected. Right. But the Global Partnership for Education board members are not. Not necessarily. Right. Yeah. So they can't really be held accountable for not talking about private education. No, I don't think that they could be held accountable for things they don't talk about. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I guess we can can shift gears a little bit now and, and so look at the recipient countries of all this money that's flowing from donor countries to recipient countries through the Global Partnership for Education. What are recipient countries um, doing or not doing when it comes to private education? So I did, uh, I was curious about this, and I did an analysis of the education sector plans of the of the full GP portfolio. At that time, it was 59 countries. So these sector plans, they're part of the, just to explain, they're part of the GPE funding application. They're essentially policy papers that the governments design in country. And um, from analyzing them, I found that roughly a third of the country governments state in their plans that they support private education. So either via PPPs, or low-cost private schools, or through you know a more general encouragement uh, to to you know enable a climate where the private education sector can grow. So a third of the countries I evaluated as, as having some piece of their education policies as supportive of private schooling. So in a sense, the board of directors isn't necessarily talking about it. Mm-hmm. The secretariat doesn't necessarily have this 10% provision like the FTI did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the secretariat staff generally said that they don't, it's not what they plan to focus on or not what they wish to focus on. The majority of the secretariat members that I spoke with. 
So they don't focus on um, private schooling per se or formally. And then, but yet many of the recipient countries um, put in there the documents that are guiding the, the, the development of, of their education system. They include this notion of private schooling as, as being, being part of the, the development of their education system. How do you, like, what, how are these ideas of private schooling entering the education sector plans? So it's, it's actually very hard to interpret these education sector plans because on the one hand, they're said to be country driven. Uh, so it's, it's very possible that the recipient countries truly see a lot of value in the growth of the private sector. Um, on the other hand, I was told, and I, and I, I touched on this earlier, I was told by some of the respondents that these plans and the education policies within the countries are actually driven in large part by international actors or development partners that have a strong presence at the country level. So for example, I was told specifically that the World Bank, who, as I mentioned, was a supervising entity in uh, 70% of these countries, and certain bilateral donors, they have a lot of input into these education policies. So support of private schools may reflect the recipient country preferences, but it might also reflect international actor preferences. It's very difficult to say. Right, and the interplay between them, right? I mean, these these the way these documents must be written, these education support plans must be the government officials are in, you know, working with or in, you know, in collaboration with the development partners. And so how that document then gets created is probably a mix of both opinions. Yes, and I and I I got the impression that it it's very country dependent. In some countries it seems as though the development partner, partners are almost the the authors of the education policies and others the governments have have much more influence. Is the goal of of the funding of the the global partnership for education in part to, in a sense, put itself out of business by developing these low-income countries to be able to fund education to the level that they see fit, like independently or self-sufficiently? Well, one would hope that that's the end goal. Uh, one, one would hope that this would be temporary. Um, I, I think the Fast Track Initiative was... Was initially uh, established as a short-term initiative, as a short-term trust fund, but it's it's been around for almost fifteen years now, I think, and so uh, it would be a wonderful thing if if recipient countries didn't require aid, but um, it, it seems as though it will be around for a little while. Over those fifteen years, do you know if there? been fewer recipient countries? No, there's been more. It's grown. And I should say, though, that the recipient country, the nature of the recipient countries has has grown in part because they changed their funding mechanisms and their eligibility requirements. And now they are increasing their funding to conflict affected and fragile states. And this is actually a really big success story on the part of the GPE, because there was a time when it was the FTI where 
it would only lend or give money to uh, good performers. So countries who had this education sector plan, but also showed that they were already starting to to support their public systems of education, but that really disqualified all the fragile states. But they changed their funding modalities and their eligibility requirements, and now this huge uh, increase in in countries is in large part due to their support of conflict-affected and fragile states. Right. So countries like Iraq and Syria? Well, Syria is is not on there. And this is another issue around uh, the funding, is that it's only to low-income countries. And so the funding can't go to any country classified as middle-income. And who does this classification? Well, it's based on, I, I think the income classification is based on the World Bank classifications around income level. Um, I think the GPE was designed to to put to essentially put on a fast track countries that simply could not afford to support their own education systems and and they're focusing on very poor recipient countries. Hmm. So returning to this lack of debate on the board level within the global partnership for education what do you think what effects do you think this has on the global partnership for education because presumably they're not you know it's not only private education that they're not discussing there's probably other topics that are being strategically avoided so what sort of you know after doing all this research what sort of consequences do you see and and what sort of changes would you envision going forward? Well, I I mean, I'll speak first more specifically about the the impacts regarding this lack of debate on private education specifically. Uh, I think that one of the biggest issues is something that, that we've discussed already is this influence of international actors like the World Bank and the donors within the recipient countries. So if the GPE doesn't have a well-established policy on private education that results from real debate and real dialogue at the board level, I'd I'd worry that the in-country decision-making process could be just driven by international organizations that happen to be influential at the country level and have their own opinions on private schooling. So that's one concern. Uh, another around around private education is that nearly everyone I interviewed, even when I didn't ask questions around this, mentioned, and this is from both sides of the debate, mentioned that there was a serious need for regulation of the private sector throughout the global south. And I see this as an area that the GPE could make some real impact in you know, designing some kind of regulatory framework or enforcing it. But this isn't happening because the topic is just being avoided. So it seems like it's a real lost opportunity. Um, finally, I think the the one of the biggest impacts that this could have, and this uh, n- this non debate culture or the avoidance of debate on any kind of policy issue. Uh, could impact really the legitimacy of of the partnership because it seems as though really important decisions aren't being made. Um, I did an analysis of 
the GPE board decisions since 2009, like the final board decisions that came out of meetings. They list them on their websites. Uh, And in my coding of them, I found that board decisions on education policy matters just in general aren't made very frequently. Uh, There's a lot of decision making on on GPE governance, a ton of decision making done by the board of directors about the board of directors. Uh, um, And and, uh, they, they discuss funding mechanisms and a few other issues, but very, very few discussions happening on education policy recommendations. And I think it's just simply because these conversations are really hard to have. And so they're avoided. But as I said, this could risk the legitimacy of a partnership that's supposed to be there as a forum for making collective consensus-based decisions on very significant educational issues. Well, Francine Menashe, thank you very much for joining Fresh Ed. Thank you for having me on. Francine Menashe is an assistant professor in the Department of Leadership in Education at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Next week, I speak with David Cole about a pedagogy of cinema. Fresh Ed is brought to you by the Globalization and Education Special Interest Group of the Comparative and International Education Society. You can subscribe to Fresh Ed on iTunes and follow the show on Twitter using the handle at Fresh Ed Podcast. The opinions expressed on Fresh Ed are solely those of the host or the guest interviewed, not CIES or the Globalization and Education SIG, which take no institutional positions. Original music for Fresh Ed was created by Digital Primate. Thanks for listening. I'm Will Brem, and see you next week.